I thought what I'd do before I get into my message this morning is I thought I would take some time and pray around three issues. One is the BC fires and those who have been obviously really affected and with a fire at Nine Mile last night, I think it's starting to feel a little close to home for us. Awesome that we had rain. But I want to pray for all the fire crews and the people often unseen that are just doing a huge amount of heavy lifting to protect us and to help us and that God would strengthen them and bless them for their efforts. Also, for the violence in Charlottesville that broke out in the States um, yesterday that was fueled by protests and counter-protests and white nationalists and uh, anti-fascist groups, uh, both uh, kind of escalating violence in their language and their actions leading to one person uh, being killed. And, um, And then lastly, for the situation around North Korea and the tension there, praying for our leaders to have wisdom, to know how to navigate those really tricky waters, which we all have a stake in. So I'd like you to, I invite you to join me in prayer for those things. Gracious God, we poured our hearts to you this morning. First of all, we thank you for rain. In Matthew 5, Jesus, you said that um, you, you send rain and sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. You are good to all, even if the attitude of our hearts is against you. We thank you for rain in this region. We thank you for those who are serving in such a uh, difficult and relentless uh, task before them. Pray that you'll strengthen and sustain them, that you would bless them, God. God, we also pray for the violence that has broken out in Charlottesville in the States that is kind of endemic to violent language and violent ideologies that seem to be creeping up in both the extreme left and the extreme right politically. Pray, God, that your church in Charlottesville and your church in the States and your church around the world would rise up to be a people who are light in the midst of darkness, people that offer good news and hold out the gospel of hope, a gospel that I really think is the only solution to healing the kind of anger and hurt and violent bent of the human heart, the only power that can genuinely de-escalate this violence. Pray for the victims of violence there, and just pray that um, in a powerful way you would reveal yourself, that you would stand against any ideology that is built on uh, racism or dehumanization. God, that... um, God, that you would intervene in such a way that peace would be sown in a situation where right now there's just so much darkness and chaos. And for the situation with North, North Korea and the states and the threats being lobbied back and forth, God, we pray for deep wisdom for all the leaders involved that in the best sense of the word, the, the full fear of God we put in all leaders to recognize their responsibility to govern in a way that is just and right and good. That you would... You would, God, protect these leaders from making a decision that is foolish, that is born out of pride, that is born out of uh, sinful arrogance. God, you would stand against any rulers that would be seeking to use these kinds of weapons, which are so catastrophically violent and indiscriminate. And um, God, that you would put the right people and the right conversations and the right channels to broker peace 
and that there would be a constructive, peaceful solution to these tensions. God, we pray to you, God, because we don't have the ability or the power to fix these things. We feel very powerless and helpless. So we're coming to you, and we're asking that your will would be done. We ask that you would show yourself strong in these situations so that people would recognize your hand in these things. God, as we open up your word this morning, may our hearts be open to hearing how this word challenges us. Would you use it, even in simply receiving it, by your Holy Spirit, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ? And I ask this in his name. Amen. Well, long, long before the internet came into existence, trolling was a thing. And if you're unfamiliar with internet culture, trolling is a word that's used to describe a person who's intentionally sowing discord. They're, in st- they're intentionally trying to stir the pot and upset people, usually by posting things of an inflammatory nature on a YouTube comment or maybe on a message board or on a Facebook comment thread. They're trying to say something which provokes a reaction in people. They're not not, not, um, seeking to add a constructive voice to any kind of a conversation. They're just trolling like you would troll for a fish. They're trying to catch people and just get them upset, really for their own amusement. They just take kind of pleasure and delight in indiscriminately upsetting people. In Mark 12, verses 18 to 27, which is the passage we're going to look at today, we discover a group of religious elites who are essentially trying to troll Jesus. They ask him a question, but it's really designed to make Jesus look like a fool. And it's designed to publicly discredit him and to embarrass him. But Jesus' response is really powerfully instructive, and it shows us how to deal with these kinds of people in our own lives and how to deal with people who seemingly just want to sow discord and who just operate out of malicious intent. So I'm going to read the passage together. You can follow along, Mark chapter 12. It'll be on the screen. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married, uh, sorry, the second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. And in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, so this encounter happens in the final week of Jesus's, uh, the final week leading up to the cross. Jesus has a lot of different factions, a lot of uh, 
people with a vested interest in trying to discredit him, trying to get him in trouble, trying to get him into hot water with Rome. They're trying to figure out a way to kind of tighten the screws on Jesus such that he makes a mistake and he gets killed because there's a lot of people, both politically and religiously, who have a vested interest in shutting Jesus down. Now, last week we looked at how the Pharisees and the Herodians kind of teamed up and tried to trap him with this question of paying taxes, and now it's the Sadducees' turn. So I just want to take a moment and make sure we are on the same page about who the Sadducees are, because this is just a weird, strange encounter if we don't understand who the Sadducees are and what they stand for. So the Sadducees, really quickly, were just one of the four main Jewish political movements that occurred between about 150 years before Jesus to 50 years after. You had the Pharisees, Essenes, Sadducees, and the Zealots. All of those movements kind of percolate and rise between what we would think of as the end of the Old Testament and into the first half of the first century. And they all had different visions for how the kingdom of God should be established in the world. And that's what kind of made them distinct. The Sadducees were kind of the wealthy religious aristocrats. They were the ruling elites. Most of them were priests. Most of them were very, very wealthy. And they saw themselves as the most purest expression of Jewish theology and thought. Because while the Pharisees said the entire Old Testament is authoritative for a Jew, along with the oral tradition of all the rabbis, The Sadducees said, no, we only follow Moses. So it's only in the first five books that are authoritative. The rest of the Bible might be instructive, but we don't worry about following that. It's the first five books because they come directly from Moses. Only they are authoritative. And one of the interesting things about that is when they studied and just kept going through the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, what they realized is, or what they thought they realized was, this is really instructions about how God wants us to live in this life. And there doesn't seem to be anything here about the afterlife. There's no talk here about um, uh, angels and supernatural realm and life after death and the resurrection of the death and heaven and hell. So theologically, in terms of their doctrine, their, their beliefs, they said, there is no afterlife. This life is all there is. And God has given us instructions on how to live this life to his glory, and then you die, that's it. And they saw themselves as theologically very pure because of this, because they didn't get into debates about, well, I wonder what it's going to be like. What's the furniture in heaven going to be like? Hmm, I'm not sure. What's the temperature of hell? They were like, no, we stick with what God has revealed through Moses. And that is, especially in the book of Leviticus, Levitical laws, which we must abide by. So that's where they're coming from. They're wealthy priests who see this life is all there is. They don't believe in the resurrection. And Mark makes it clear to highlight that in this passage. So they bring Jesus a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, again, we've got to stop here for a second because that's super, super weird. This is a custom that we obviously don't have in our culture. And a few cultures have it around the world. But in the ancient world, this is fairly common. This is called a Leverite marriage. It has nothing to do with the Levites in the Old Testament. It just comes from the Latin word, which means marriage with a brother-in-law. And the idea was this. If you were a woman and you married a man, and over the course of your marriage, you were unable to 
give an heir, an offspring to that man, and that man dies, if that man had unmarried brothers in his family, you would then marry that brother. And if that brother, now your new husband, got you pregnant, the child that was born counted as the child of the first man. And this was done for a few reasons. Number one, uh, a lot of societies practice this because it acts as a kind of, as strange as this sounds, life insurance for women in the ancient world. Women are not educated. They have no ability to earn a living through a job. So when your husband dies, if you can't get remarried, that's just a fast track to poverty. So this is instituted so that the woman... Because um, in some traditions, and I don't know how often this is practiced, it wasn't mandatory that the woman marry the brother, but she, if she requested it, the unmarried brother had to marry her. So it wasn't necessarily forced, but the woman had the right to say, yeah, I want this life insurance to kick in. I have no way to support myself. I'll just be a poor, impoverished widow. The other reason why it was important was because when God gave Israel the land, he divided it in lots. And so in Deuteronomy 25, he wants these lots of lands to stay in the family name. And so passing on the family name, passing on the inheritance was really important at a certain time in in Jewish history in order for Israel to grow and prosper and kind of be bounded together as a nation. So when the Sadducees ask this question of Jesus, they're asking about a practice that for us seems super foreign and completely alien to what we would even consider to be normal or healthy or good, but it was a way for Israel to ensure that the land stayed in um, Israelite hands, the land that God had given Israel, and it protected women from uh, economic vulnerability and impoverishment. This story actually ties into one of the weirdest and, I'll be straight up, most uncomfortable stories in the whole Old Testament. Uh, You've probably never heard a sermon on Genesis chapter 38, Uh, and I'm not going to give you one this morning. But there's, uh, depending on your church background, you might know this story. There's an account in Genesis 38 where a woman named Tamar is married to a guy named Ur, just E-R, terrible name, don't name your kid, male child, Ur. Tamar is married to Ur, who's the son of Judah. Ur dies. Tamar is childless. So what Judah does, the father says, um, he follows the procedure culturally of a Leverite marriage, and he tells Ur's brother Onan sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. That's the right thing that Onan should do. In verses 9 and 10 of Genesis 38, it says, but Onan knew that the child would not be his, so he realized this isn't going to count as one of my kids. It's going to count towards my brother. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to to keep from providing offspring for his brother. And what he did was was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, this is, again, a really good example of why you need to be careful in understanding the full context of what's going on in the story, because that verse has been used as a proof text to to say, see, any kind of masturbation, any kind of sexual self-stimulation is wicked before the eyes of God. Now, masturbation is obviously a separate topic, but that's not primarily what's happening here. God is saying, Onan, it was wicked that you not only failed to, um, you went out of your way to not provide an offspring for your brother, which is the right thing to do, but you also did that 
while also using this woman's body. He didn't refuse to sleep with her. He slept with her, but he refused to... It, there's kind of a whole dynamic of he wanted the pleasure, but none of the responsibility that comes with that. And God looks at that entire situation, that nest of selfishness, and says, that is wicked, and God put Onan to death. So we know who the Pharisees are. They don't believe in resurrection. They're asking this question that deals with a widow who's had, probably a hypothetical question, a widow who's had all these um, brothers who she hasn't been able to, or sorry, no, we haven't gotten to that yet. They're raising the question of Levitical marriage. And then here comes their question. They say, okay, there are seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. Second one married the widow, on and on. And they say, in fact, none of the seven left any children. And then, after, in a sense, going through all these brothers, the woman finally dies childless. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So you think through the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So why are they asking a question about the resurrection? Well, that should give us a clue that this isn't actually a legitimate question. This isn't a genuine truth-seeking question. This is trolling. This is them throwing out a question that is designed to make Jesus and some of the stuff that he's said about the afterlife and life in the age to come and the resurrection to make all of that look just foolish and preposterous and absurd. This question is designed to trip up the person who believes in the afterlife because they're going to say, oh, yeah, um, well, that's a good question. If they're married now and then after they die, if they, I, well, I guess maybe if they're married, is it the first person that, ooh. And it's, it's meant to expose the whole idea of an afterlife is just ridiculous. I've, clearly, there obviously isn't resurrection because of just common sense situations like this that happen in this life. This is the equivalent of being in high school and having that atheist friend who's maybe thinks they're more clever than they are and saying, oh, you're always talking about how God, your God that you serve is so powerful. Let me ask you this. If God's so powerful, could he create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Mic drop, boom, right? That's not a sincere question. There's no way to answer that question in a way that satisfies that person. That question is designed to basically make the idea of an all-powerful God just look stupid. That's what's happening through this question. And this is the posture. This is the question of a scoffer. Now, a scoffer isn't a word we use very often, but it's an excellent word that comes from the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, there's a number of people that are referred to, different types or kinds of people. And these people are referred to in relationship to how, to, how they engage God's truth, how they engage their experience in the world and how they learn from those experiences and learn from um, the patterns and the rhythms that God has put into reality. And one of the people that the book of Proverbs highlights again and again is the scoffer. And the scoffer is someone who mocks and ridicules and scorns the belief of other people. Proverbs talks a lot about the fool. The fool's different than a scoffer. A fool is someone who just kind of doesn't really get it. They don't learn from their mistakes. 
In some cases, they may just be absent-mindedly foolish. In other cases, they just think they're kind of above the laws of God and they can live however they want and not experience the consequence. So a fool is someone who just doesn't seek out wisdom or when hardships happen to them, they don't stop and say, hmm, I wonder how I'm contributing to this cycle of self-inflicted sabotage. They're not learning from God's word, from experience, from nature. But a scoffer is something distinct. They can be a fool, there can be overlap, but a scoffer is someone who's fueled by an arrogance that leads them to delight in making fun of people who believe and have convictions that would lead them to seek to honor God. A few weeks ago, I guess a month ago, I wrote an article for the Nelson Star. That article garnered a response from someone within the community. And then in turn, Justin and then myself wrote kind of counter-responses to that article. And if you go online and you go to the Nelson Star and you read the comment threads, you will find examples of scoffers, of people who aren't necessarily engaging with the ideas, they're not arguing from a place of principle or logic or any kind of reason. Their one or two lines are intentionally designed just to mock Justin's ideas or to demean mine or to dismiss them. And although tone is not perfectly communicated through just writing, in reading it, it's hard not to read a tone of arrogance and dismissiveness in some of the interactions that we got. In 2 Peter 3.3, Peter cautions the early church. He says, above all, you need to understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. One of the marks of the last age will be, last days will be people who take delight in just demeaning and mocking the genuine convictions of those who follow God. Now, I thought this would be a good place to pause and just ask, how do you deal with scoffers? Because you probably have them in your life. I have them in my life. I had them a lot in my life when I was in, like, in high school and I became a Christian. A lot of people in high school and then kind of maybe high school to mid-late 20s is a particularly um, vibrant window. It's kind of a petri dish for cultivating a scoffing attitude because you can kind of have a certain cynicism that can take root at that stage of life. You add that with a youthful arrogance and you layer that with exposure to maybe a few ideas. You know, just enough to be dangerous. I read a book by Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or I watch this YouTube thing and yeah, yeah, Christianity's stupid. Christianity's a myth. Anybody who believes this stuff is a joke. And that can all coalesce to kind of form this Petri dish which makes a posture of scoffing really easily take hold. Now, again, that's, scoffing isn't an issue for just that age group, but my experience has been that can be particularly tempting for some walking through uh, that demographic window. I think we learn a few things from Scripture in terms of how to deal with people who are operating in our lives out of malicious intent. They're not trying to genuinely engage with us. They're trying to mock us, demean us, dismiss us, make fun of us, tease us, the first thing scripture says is don't sit with them. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers or scoffers, depending on your translation. 
There's a sequence there. The psalmist says, be careful because as you're pursuing God and walking towards the things of God, don't start walking on the path of sinners and then stand with them and then ultimately sit. See, the picture the psalmist is trying to paint is that these are people who slowly will arrest the momentum in your life. You want to progress in your life? These are people who will slowly hold you back, slow you down, and then anchor you in place until you're sitting with mockers and scoffers and there's no momentum. You're just there. Number two, we should confront them, but don't spend a lot of time trying to convince them. You'll learn over time how to graciously confront people who are scoffers and also realize how foolish it is to really try and enter into constructive conversation with them 99% of the time. Because most of the time, they're not looking for anything constructive. They're just looking to tear you down and belittle you. Proverbs 9 says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. When there are people in our life who very clearly, from their posture, from their words, from their behavioral patterns, seem to just simply want to poke at us and hurt us and, and stab us with words, you confront them, and then you move on to the third thing, which is just avoid them, drive them out of your life. Not because you hate them, not because you harbor resentment towards them, but because that's how you deal with these people. You have to create boundaries in their life that say, I know what's going on here. I'm not going to play your game. I'm letting you know that I see what's going on and I have better things to do. Because you're not really interested in humbling yourself and even just understanding my perspective. I'm not asking you to agree with me. You're not even really trying to understand my perspective. And we see in Scripture, and we're going to see in Jesus' example, that he gives us lots of permission to set boundaries with people who are operating out of malicious intent towards us. Proverbs 22 says, drive out the mocker and out goes strife. There are times where you just need to say to someone, I see what's going on. I am either removing you from my life or I'm moving over here. I'm not adding, I'm not giving oxygen to this fire. It's not going anywhere. And we see Jesus doing all of these things in verse 24. He says, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. He's not going to get pulled into the game. He graciously, I picture him graciously, but strongly confronts them in their error. You think you have the pure doctrine. You think you know your scriptures. You actually don't. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. He responds in such a way that makes their question look silly and small and petty and stupid. And he creates a boundary. They don't bother him after this. His response drives them away. He's not getting into another debate with them. He's closing the door. He establishes a clear message that this kind of questioning isn't welcome. Because it's not grounded in a sincere search for truth. They aren't really trying to mine Jesus' perspective on something so that they can consider it and decide whether or not to follow him. They're just looking for a way to say, are you hearing this guy? Look at how ridiculous this is. This is nonsense. See, we are, we're right. There's no resurrection. There's no afterlife. This guy can't even make heads or tails of some of these questions that we're asking him. Then Jesus goes on and confronts them 
by doing this it's really interesting kind of interpretational sleight of hand, right? They're like, we don't believe in an afterlife. We don't believe in the resurrection because in the first five books of the Bible, Moses doesn't talk about it. There is some mention of afterlife and things and allusions to that in the other books of the Old Testament, but they're not authoritative for us. We're people of, you know, some people might say we're people of the book, the Bible. They would say we're people of like the, the real book, like the pure, pure one, like the, the first five books. So what Jesus says, he goes, back to an, he goes back to an encounter in that book to show them why they're wrong. He says, okay, so about the dead rising, about this no resurrection thing, and you think it's foolish to believe this. Um, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. Now, we might miss there what Jesus is doing. And it's a, kind of a weird interpretational sleight of hand, but Jesus is saying, do you notice that when God introduces himself to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for a long time now, but God doesn't introduce himself to Moses as, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, and now I'm your God. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's present tense. And that's what Jesus was saying is, part of what God is communicating is, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are now with me. They've died, but they're now with me. They still exist. We don't talk about them in the past tense. I am the God of the living not the dead. And so Jesus, in this very quick turn, just says, man, you guys should be at an advantage because you don't even have to study the whole Old Testament in the, in the oral tradition. You just need to study the first five books and I can think of something right away that shows that God very clearly alluded to the fact that in this life, those who put their trust in him can be assured that they will be taken care of in the life of the age to come. Here's some application for us today. The scoffer thing is one thing. How do you deal with scoffers? Think about those things. Apply that to your life. Be careful of how close you let people who are operating out of a um, bitter, arrogant, prideful heart get close to you. You don't have to hate those people. You don't have to dismiss them completely from your life. You have to create boundaries such that you're not getting pulled into their way of engagement. I guess the question that I would, I kept coming back to for myself, because it's kind of this scary question that Jesus confronts the Sadducees with, is, you know, do, do I actually know the scriptures and the power of God? Do I actually know them? Because the Sadducees came in hot with these questions saying, yeah, we know our stuff. This is patently ridiculous. And in one moment, Jesus exposes their whole theology for a house of cards. Do we know the scriptures and the power of God? Meaning, and I think this is what Jesus is getting at because it ties into this idea of resurrection. Do we, are we immersed in the scriptures in such a way that we know that the God that we serve is a God of the living and not the dead? Meaning, that there is nothing that is more powerful than God. God isn't under the power of some other thing. See, this is part of what Jesus is critiquing in the Sadducees' worldview. The Sadducee says, well, there's no life after death. But if that's true, then that means Genesis 1, God created everything. God said that it was good. 
He makes man and, image, uh, man and women as image bearers in Genesis 2. He gives them a commission in Genesis 3. They rebel. There's a false and uh, permeates everything. And now there's a curse of sin and death that reigns over all things. God promises to redeem um, humanity and the world through the curse of sin and death. But if you don't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection life where God is going to fully restore this creation and make a new heavens and new earth, then what you're conceding is death actually does get the final say. Death is more, empower- is more powerful than God's power. God would like to redeem things, but he actually can't. He can do some things in this life, but everyone's going to die. Everyone's going to move into non-existence. So death has the end of the story. And Jesus is essentially saying to the Sadducees, you serve a God who is, in a sense, beholden to the power of death. And that's not who the biblical God is. That's why resurrection is clearly true and plausible. Because to not believe in the resurrection would be to believe that there is a force out there that is more powerful than God's will for his creation. And what that means is, if we know the scriptures, if we're learning day by day how to grow in our understanding of God and come into a lived relationship with this God of the living, that should build in us a progressive optimism and hopefulness because when we lose our job, when our marriage hits a wall, when habits drive us into the ground, when circumstances are crushing us, where there's relational strife in your life that just feels suffocating, we can know that those forces of sin and death do not have the end of the story. They don't get the final say. God can intervene in such a way that these dead ends in our lives can lead to resurrection through his power. And that means Christians should never live with hopelessness in any area of their life because hopelessness is the condition that arises when you believe that blank, you fill it in, is more powerful than God. My circumstances, my habits, my genetics, um, um, uh, my spouse's issues, my issues, my history, hopelessness occurs and sets in when you say those things are more powerful than God. You can't be hopeless if you believe and know that you serve the God of the living. And Jesus makes that clear. If you're in a relationship with him, you are in a relationship with the God of the living, the God of hope, the God who understands how to take dead things and make them alive. That's part of the lesson when Jesus is raising people from the dead. Yes, obviously, that he has the power over death, that even those in death, he can take them up. Like Jairus' daughter, little girl, get up. But it's also metaphorical to mean there's no situation that you look at from a human perspective that you should say, I can definitively say this part of my life is over or this is always the way it's going to be. Or there's no hope in this situation. I would gently but firmly say to you and to myself, if we're tempted by those words, how dare you believe God is so small? How dare you believe that this thing that you're walking through, this circumstance, these things on the inside, God looks at them and, and is like, wow, yeah, that's, 
I got nothing. I don't know how, I don't have, no, I have no tools in my toolkit for that. Sorry, if you were dealing with this kind of stuff, then I could probably help you, but I can't hear, so just play out your life and hope for the best. No. God is the God of the living. Christians, in our most clear-thinking moments, should radiate hopefulness and optimism, even in the midst of storms. Now, it's easy to read a passage like this, and the Sadducees are obviously the bad guys. They're scoffers. They're those uh, smirky, condescending, arrogant jerks who are just trying to expose Jesus. Just really slimy and we might even be tempted to say irredeemable. But it's important to remember that in this story, that this story points to the fact that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel for scoffers. It's a gospel for sinners and scoffers. Jesus didn't just die for moderately immoral people. People who are pretty good, but made a few mistakes here and there. Jesus died and took upon himself the sins of the whole world. The little sins that to us seem very uh, trite and almost inconsequential to the major ones. To even sins like when the Son of God comes in human form, there are soldiers mocking and beating him, making fun of him, Hail, King of the Jews, beating him and saying, oh, you're blindfolded. Oh, prophesy. You, use, your, use your spiritual wonder-working powers. Which one of us hit you, Jesus? Which one? Show us how awesome you are. And on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See, in some sense, we're all scoffers before God. All of us have lived part of our life knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And I lived a portion of my life with my finger up to God, saying, I don't need you, this is ridiculous, I don't even need to think about this. But the Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still scoffers, Jesus died for us. And Jesus died for those dead in their sins so that they could be raised to new life and be rescued from a posture of a scoffer, the heart of people resisting God or demeaning God or making fun of God or dismissing God to people who are learning to love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the process, experiencing dead things in their life, becoming regenerate and reborn through the power of Jesus' love and grace. Let's pray. God, may we be a people who diligently search the scriptures. And for some of us, God, we find doing that boring or disengaging or we find our minds wandering and, and we want to be better in that area, but we struggle. And I pray that this week would be a week where we would search out new resources that would allow us to go deeper into scripture and expose ourselves to your truth, to come to understand who you are and to live inside of this living hope, Peter says. God, if we have attitudes of scoffing in our own heart, may you put that to death. And God, for those this morning for whom there is a relationship, there's a situation, there's an area that they look at and they say, I don't really hold out any hope here. My experience tells me 
that this situation is more powerful than God's redemptive power. I pray, God, that even this week, you would, um, by your spirit, have a breakthrough happen in such a way that these uh, people would realize, wow, I serve the God of the living who can take situations that are a dead end and bring them to life. And I pray and ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.